0: This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is sponsored by Marantz.
1: A great balance of warmth and smoothness while maintaining tons of details. It's basically responsible for playing the soundtrack to my childhood. These are real
0: words spoken by real Marantz fans, who are some of the most passionate audio lovers in the world. When you spin vinyl on a Marantz turntable connected to a Marantz hi-fi system, you'll understand why Marantz is one of the most legendary hi-fi companies of all time, and why their fans are so passionate about that warm, rich, legendary Morant sound. Check out all the latest Morant gear at Morantz.com. That's M-A-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Or see what their fans have to say at hashtag
1: Welcome back to this, the fourth episode of the MP Anthology, The Story of Stax Records. I'm your host, Andrew Winestorfer. When we last left you, Stax was left reeling when Otis Redding and the Bar Ks died in that tragic December 1967 plane crash. The next two albums in your box set came out in the immediate aftermath of that crash, during a 1968 and 1969 that eventually became known in Stax lore as the Soul Explosion. But Otis and the Bar K's Dying was just the start of three different things that combined to end the first period of Stacks, which I talked to Robert Gordon about here. So Sam and
2: Dave were super popular, um, and in December
3: 1967, uh, after Otis has had throat surgery, has come back to the s- s- studio, finds his voice is great. They're actually re-recording vocals on old r- recordings, and he goes out for a three-night tour run, and it has the plane crash, December mm-hmm. nineteen sixty-seven. So that begins the perfect storm that brings down Stax in the its first period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's followed by um, Jerry. Wexler at Atlantic had always been afraid that that he and his partners would miss the cash-out moment and He'd been bugging the Erdogan's his partners to sell the company for several years and as the age of conglomerates is beginning and There's big money being paid to assemble a lot of diverse uh, Industries and businesses under one roof um the Kinney car lot in Manhattan is uh, buying Atlantic and Stacks, And so Atlantic told Stacks, hey, we're going to go make this deal. D- you know, what do you want to do? And Stax had the out if they wanted because the one thing in the contract that Jim had done right was put in a key man clause saying, you know, if Jerry Wexler were to leave the company, I would be free to depart. And... But he's, he says, hey, if, if we're all going to cash out, I'll cash out. But he can't understand why the offers to him from Kenny are so low. Hmm. And, and finally, he just says, no, you know, I, I can't make a deal with you. I'm going to leave. And when, he, and when he decides he's not making that deal, Wexler has to tell him, all those records you've released are mine and not yours. And Jim Stewart's going, you know, and everyone at Stacks is taxed, like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. And there was a clause saying that in the contract. Jim hadn't read the contract and had signed everything away without his, without his, knowledge. So they lose, they uh, they lose the uh, catalog. They've lost their big star. They lose the catalog. What's the third part of the storm?
1: Well, they yeah they lose they lose Otis they lose the catalog they lose Sam and Dave
3: they lose Sam and Dave so when when they split Atlantic plays its card uh, has this chit it's been holding that says hey Sam and Dave is ours mm-hmm. and they take Sam and Dave dreadful mistake because Sam and Dave never have a hit again right yeah but there's another factor oh Dr King is assassinated oh right so yeah. so so this uh, this is happening in early 1968. When Jim learns that he's going to lose everything, he's still going to have his company. He's still going to have a studio. He's still going to have all the tapes he's not released. Um, so basically, he's lost everything. He's, he's, he's lost the thing that makes him money, mm-hmm. although he's going to get a royalty. He's going to continue to get a, a royalty. It's just devastating to know. That everything you've built for yourself is not yours right and and they said a may 5th or sometime in may 1968 the atlantic stack separation is going to happen and then in april prior to that dr king is assassinated in memphis so from december it's just an ever darkening mood at stacks until it's basically catatonic and al bell after all these things happen Albel assumes the authority and goes into the archives and finds some songs they can release and sort of begins to blow on the embers and create the second period of stacks.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the people that sort of emerges Cause like there's this huge pressure I think at Stax. Then is they've lost one at one and two Yeah. for there's, there's this like power vacuum for like, who is the star here? Right. And they kind of like start trying a lot of different people that maybe don't get a look in the same way previous to that. And Eddie Floyd and Johnny Taylor, who are both in this box set, sort of are two different sides of that. Like yeah. post Otis thing. That, yes. Like,
3: yes. Um, and they they put you know they, uh, um, each of them have had hits already by this point in time, um, you know Eddie's gone to Europe and he's a big deal with uh, knock on wood, but um, but yeah they put a new they're they're looking for for a new lead player which is really and and they need a catalog and so those two things combine in their efforts to create the. Uh, Soul Explosion, mm-hmm. which is—I forget who coined the term. Uh, it might have been me and, and a friend one night. I remember I was talking about it, but it might be in Bowman's book or Peter's book. I don't mm-hmm. know. But but Stacks is basically looking to to create an instant catalog. It's important to note when we say instant that they own they Stacks assumes its own self ownership in May 1968, and this Soul Explosion doesn't occur for a year later Mm -hmm. so so the instantaneousness of it it, there's actually a lot of work behind it but what they're doing is they're going to release a whole slew of albums at once Mm -hmm. um in that interim they're also al bell is bringing down a producer from detroit to try a new sound uh johnny taylor is selected to be the uh kind of guinea pig for it and he unleashes who's making love which becomes the biggest single Stax has had to date Mm -hmm. And and so Johnny Taylor assumes, you know, he's he's a contender and who's gonna take take the top of the mountain Mm -hmm. Eddie is uh, powerful with um, Knock on wood. So he's a Mm -hmm. contender
1: and then never found a girl the record we're doing because like that becomes a big hit Big hit one of the only hits and one of the only releases they did in 1968 in that period in between because they're
3: yeah exactly so so Johnny Taylor and Eddie Floyd are tapped to release records um before the instant catalog before mm-hmm. the 69 soul explosion because they've got a following that can justify it it's not mm-hmm. a it's not a, it's there's less chance less iffiness right and never found a girl is a great song yeah i mean it's kind of funny you listen to that album and it stands out mm-hmm. it's just like i kind of feel like um They recorded, my guess here, pure speculation, they recorded all the basic tracks and scratch vocals and then kind of sat and said, which are the two here that we want to concentrate on, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And one of them was, I never found a girl. And when you listen through, it really has, you can hear the extra care put into it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Pay off the, the work paid off. Right. For sure.
1: Um so we you touched on it a little bit but let's talk about the soul explosion cuz mm-hmm. that's this is the 50th anniversary of yeah. the soul explosion and that's you know what stacks is really celebrating this year and um, is i guess technically like we're part of this box set is like part of their celebration of the soul explosion even though we have like a lot a lot of records that are not part of it but um, I guess, like, it, the idea that you have to create this instant catalog makes sense on paper, but it also, like, from what I'm talking with Steve Cropper, I talked with him yesterday. Uh, it basically like ruined the company in a way that like the band got burned out because like it was one thing if you're Booker T and the MGs and you're in the studio making all these records, but then you're making singles. And then now they're like, we need to make 30
3: LPs in a year. And if you go back to thinking about those 10 tracks for Eddie Floyd and they focus on one or two, you know, that had not happened in the past, basically because they hadn't been an album company they'd been a singles company and they would pick a song and focus on it. They wouldn't record 10. They, mm-hmm. they wouldn't intend to release 10 with two good ones. Right. They would intend that everything they released could be a big hit. Um, it's pretty clear that, you know, some of the, 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 not, some of the non-hits on some of the r- r- records are always going to be non-hits even mm-hmm. because they just did it too fast. You know, they didn't put the effort into it or, they experimented more you know they they knew it wasn't going to be pop but it was worth doing right and 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 so steve's point is you know we we were a quality company that got converted to a quantity company
1: right yeah and so i guess like not how you know not many of those things became hits out of the soul explosion, right? right? It's like really Johnny Taylor is like sort of the guy. Well, that like, Isaac Hayes. What? Isaac Hayes. Oh, Isaac Hayes too, that's yeah. right. Hot butter soul. Yeah, the, the risk that they're able to take is that they then let Isaac Hayes make records. So it's Isaac Hayes and Johnny Taylor Yeah. are like basically the only two acts that get close to replacing Otis and Sam and Dave. Yes,
3: right. and, and, and it's important, I think it's artistically important to point out that you know, there was no intention for Isaac Hayes to be a hit. That was all in those in the in the sort of when I was describing the non hit tracks, you know, there were the sort of throwaways. And then the, and, and then there were ones where the artists just wanted to do something different for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the some of those are the kind of songs that are never going to be hits, but they're always going to be great. And that's kind of the thing isaac was doing i'm never going to be a hit but this <laughs> sort of you know I want to do this 12 minute spoken intro and I want to you know Expand the possibilities and so he just did what was basically an experimental album that took off and became a hit and Johnny taylor and so johnny taylor and isaac hayes assumed the mantle uh at Stax.
1: Though he was born in Alabama, Eddie Floyd's music career started even further away from Memphis. In 1955, as a teenager, Floyd convinced his uncle to let him move with him to Detroit. At that point, a city still booming with jobs and opportunity. Floyd took little time in starting a group in Detroit. He founded the Falcons with co workers at a jewelry store shortly after arriving in the city. Sometimes called the world's first soul group, the Falcons were notable because they were interracial at a time that was a rarity though that only lasted until the two white members joined the military when the Falcons' 1956 Floyd Penn debut single didn't gain any traction. Needing members, Floyd enlisted Mac Rice, who'd go on to write Respect Yourself for the Staple Singers, and Joe Stubbs, younger brother of one of the four tops, as lead singer. The group had a monster hit in 1959. You're So Fine sold a million copies and found the Detroit group playing on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. When the Falcons were working on follow-up material, Stubbs demanded that his name go in front of the groups. They'd be Joe Stubbs and the Falcons, and Floyd and the other members responded by kicking him out. Stubbs' replacement was someone whose life would be intertwined with Floyd's forever, Wilson Pickett. Though he sang on some of their biggest hits, Pickett was never actually in any group press photographs. In fact, while their manager kept pushing for them to ask Pickett to be the lead singer, Floyd and the rest of the group kept angling to get a young singer who just moved to Detroit named Marvin Gaye to join the Falcons. Pickett's contribution to the Falcons was mostly as a touring member, as the group had trouble convincing any label to release their singles after 1960, though their 1962 hit, I Found a Love, was co-written by Pickett. In 1963, the group functionally disbanded when Pickett went solo and was subsequently signed to Atlantic, and when Floyd moved to Washington D.C. In D.C., Floyd became friends with original Stax star Carla Thomas when she was in grad school, and along with Al Bell, who'd go on to run Stax in the late 60s and 70s, Floyd co-wrote "Comfort Me," the title track for Thomas's sophomore LP. Soon after, Floyd was a fixture at Stax writing 6345789 for Wilson Pickett who was in Memphis recording at Stax. He also wrote a song for Otis Redding that would become his calling card, Knock on Wood, which Floyd recorded references for and Stewart decided to put out as Floyd's own single. It would become one of the most iconic songs in Stax history. Floyd was on tour in Europe behind the Knock on Wood album late in 1967 when he got the call to come back to the States to attend Otis Redding's funeral. While waiting for his plane, and worrying about the transatlantic flight, and remembering Otis, Floyd wrote one of the most superb stack singles ever, an underrated classic that blended psych rock with soul music, Big Bird. That same kind of genre-bending would inspire the album Floyd would record in 1968, Never Found a Girl. Just the second album released by the new Sands Atlantic Stacks, the album was 11 songs that ran the gamut from gut-bucket blues to soul greatness, to vaguely rock covers of Sam Cooke classics. The album's centerpiece was of course the title track, Never Found a Girl, to Love Me Like You Do, a song that showcases everything that made Eddie Floyd great. He had a voice so smooth you could practically touch it through your speakers and a way of phrasing that could let the lyrics pull you over. With the backing vocals of Ollie and the Nightingales, the song would become Floyd's second biggest solo single after Knock on Wood. Floyd wrote the song with Booker T. Jones, who had absconded to California sometime around when Otis and the Bar Kays died. Here, Booker remembers working with Eddie in California, a pivotal part of his new book, Time is Tight. You mention that in the book a lot, you know, that one of the only people from here that like went out to California was Eddie Floyd mm-hmm. was the only guy. And we're mm-hmm. uh, we're featuring never found a girl, the LP in our box set. So mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what it was like working with Eddie at, you said you wrote that at Leon Russell's place. Yeah. He, right? he
0: came right out. He was one of the first people to come out and he stayed out on sunset Boulevard, but we worked at Leon's house uh, in, the, in the Hollywood Hills. And he had a, he had a great studio that we wrote California girl there and we wrote uh. Never found a girl, and uh, we just we just did our thing there. Leon was very; he loved to have people come over and make music at his place.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he wrote Big Bird there too, which I yeah. think is like, mm-hmm. I think you say this in the book that like that that is one of the most like left field out there stack singles that ever existed. And I don't mm-hmm. even think it ended up on an LP.
0: Yeah, we came yeah. back to Memphis to record Big Bird, though. Mm-hmm. We, we did that with with uh, Steve and Duncan Al. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that yeah that record that's one. I remember when I first heard that, just being like, I can't even believe this is from the same house band, you know, that this is so psychedelic and uh, out and, there.
0: And that's an example of the freedom, you know, the West Coast thing, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess uh, one of the other things that you're really doing at this time too is like starting to uh, arrange with strings in a way that you maybe weren't able to when you were here. How did you mm-hmm. think about adding... You know those kind of elements to the production and songwriting you were working on then.
0: Well, those were some skills that I learned at uh, Indiana, and of course we had the great uh, Dr. Gilbert from Memphis State and his and his string section who played so well. Uh, but I learned how to voice, and I learned the uh, the ranges of uh, the what I call strange instruments like the viola. The viola is not in bass clef or treble clef, it's it got a little strange <laughs> strange looking clef, and it's a C's not a C on the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I learned those instruments in there, like French horn, you think it's not, you know, it's written in, at the key of F, you know. And I was able to uh, write for some of those instruments and use some of those in, in the stacks arrangements and have, you know, uh, flutes and uh, oboes and violins and mm-hmm. that type of thing.
1: Yeah, which didn't really start appearing on Stax Records until like after you had left Stax in some ways. Like you were the first guy to start pushing it there. And then by the time that it starts really getting incorporating, mm-hmm. you know, you're off doing your own thing kind of.
0: But I enjoyed that. I thought there were some nice colors, especially for like Ollie and the Nightingales and some of the mm-hmm. script, some of the gospel tensed groups that we worked with.
1: Yeah. Well, um, Ollie and the Nightingales, they sing back up on Never Found a Girl. They do. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it like working with like that kind of gospel vocal group having just having them be like an element of a song must have been for somebody like arranging like you must have been incredible.
0: Oh, it was exciting. It was like the staple singers. They all, the gospel groups always sing harmony in a kind of a little bit of kind of a different way than the doo-wop groups. Mm -hmm. They always have that thing that just kind of gets you, just kind of touches you. I don't know how to say it. You know, it makes you, it gives you a little twinge in the, in the harmonies and that comes from the church and that, that was, that's really great. And then, uh, you know, it came from the Sam Cooke School of Gospel doo-wop singing. <laughs> but yeah, the 90s had that as did the Staple singers. Wonderful, wonderful experiences working with them.
1: Never Found a Girl will go to number two on the R&B charts. And the album it came on would feature co-writes with another MG who wrote closely with Eddie in a strange location during his time at Stax, Steve Cropper. That's actually something that I was going to bring up with because you wrote some songs in the hotel with Eddie Floyd, too. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: How often? You guys, it seemed like All the, the, the rain time, was but, like your writing studio. Well, was. it
2: was. But you know, other, other motels and hotels and different places, different times. Um, I think uh, one of the first songs I co-wrote with uh, Wilson Pickett in the Midnight Hour, we wrote three songs that day. That hotel's been gone for a long, long time. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then Otis and I moved around different places. Third Street, uh, Holiday Inn, and different places, so.
1: Why hotels?
2: Uh, hotels or motels, you know? At the sign on the Lorraine, even though it's a museum now, it says the Lorraine Hotel. We always call it Lorraine Motel. Uh-huh. <laughs> Two stories, is a motel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Park your car, go in, get a room. So anyway. Yeah. And uh, I we wrote so many songs in that hotel. Old man Bailey used to give us... He would give us a honeymoon suite if it wasn't booked. Okay. And that's where Eddie and I wrote a lot of songs. And... Uh, we wrote uh, 99 and a half we wrote six three four five seven eight nine there knock on wood i remember the corner room we wrote 99 and a half with wilson and that's gone that's part of the museum but it's been torn down but they did keep uh, the part where martin luther king was assassinated by the pool i still to this day cannot remember what song we may have written in that room but if you go down one and one over that's where we wrote knock on wood over by the pool i remember that well yeah <clears throat> so
1: um, so let's talk a little bit about Eddie. How did you guys meet each other? You guys have had like a really long Well, you know, he's a
2: Detroit guy. And um, Al Bell, before, when he was a disc jockey, before he became vice president and president of Stacks, uh, said, I am friends with a guy that you'll fall in love with. You guys have to get together, I know, because he's a writer. He's really into the business, and uh, you guys would hit it off. And that's how we met. And I think I flew to DC and met Eddie for the first time. And Al uh, Bell had uh, left WLOK and gone to WUST, one of their chain stations in Washington, DC.
1: And how quickly did you guys start writing songs together?
2: I think immediately. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Al helped us on uh, the first batch, which was uh, Comfort Me, A Woman's Love, and something else we did. And I think. Al wasn't around, and, and Eddie came to pick me up, take me to the airport, and I was <laughs> gonna take it. They didn't have a shower in those days. I go in to take a shower and realize they don't have one, so I ran some tub water, and I'm in there splashing around. I said, Eddie, I got up, dried off. I said, I got a great idea for a song. And he said, what's that? And I said, water. He said, you writing a song about water? I said, he said, how would that go? I said, I don't know, give me my guitar, and I'll show you. <laughs> so that's what we did, we wrote water. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a very big song, but people like it, so. I'm a dying man. Won't you
1: water might not have been a, been a hit, but Eddie's cover of Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home would hit number four. But despite Floyd's best heart. efforts, those would be his last top ten hits. Though he was never a chart topper after 1968, He did become Stax's Mr. Reliable, as he released seven full-length LPs on the label before it closed up shop in 1975, tied for the most albums by a solo performer on the label with Johnny Taylor, and second only to Booker T and the MGs for volume. They released 11. He still tours and performs today, and even played in the White House during the Obama administration. We chose Never Found a Girl for Anthology because it's a bridge between the two eras of Stax, and features one of their best artists at his peak. Why do people whisper when they see me? So one of the albums that was that came out uh that's in the box as part of that soul explosion because is Johnny Taylor's Raw Blues. <laughs> so we mentioned a little bit earlier but what was it like working with
2: Johnny? Well, my opinion of Johnny Taylor was, he was probably one of the better singers that Stax ever worked with. And, uh, but Johnny would get a hit, and then he'd go back to preaching. When that money went out, he'd come back and make another record. That's what he did. So he was Johnny Taylor. There wasn't nobody else that I knew of like him. And he had it all. He could dance too. I mean, he could dance just like Sam and Dave could. And, you know, he was, he was something else. Had a lot of Tell hits and, why. and he did well for
0: us. Maybe you know what they talking about.
3: Swear, that smoke that, I
1: that was Steve Cropper, remembering working with Johnny Taylor. No bigger star emerged during the soul explosion than Taylor. Growing up across the Mississippi River from Memphis in West Memphis, Arkansas. Taylor got his start as a gospel singer of considerable renown. He'd replace Sam Cooke twice in his early career, first in the Highway QCs and then in the Soul Stirrers. Taylor would eventually be signed to Cooke's record label when the latter broke big as a secular star, but his career was put in limbo when Cooke was shot dead in 1964. He moved to Memphis in 1966 and was quickly signed by Stax Records and paired with the Hayes-Porter writing duo. Taylor's biggest hit... An arguable calling card came in 1968 with Who's Making Love, a song written by a different Stax writing crew who'd become important in the label's second half. We Three, the trio of Homer Banks, Betty Crutcher, and Raymond Jackson.
0: In 1968 what and 1969,
1: Who's Making Love would become the biggest selling Stax single of all time crushing sales figures for anything that came before it. It was a runaway number 1 hit on the R&B charts, and even hit number 5 on the pop charts. A huge feat, considering all the other classic music that came out at that time. Taylor became the focal point for Stax. He'd be a commercial certainty and the label's most bankable star from basically 1968 until 1975. Like I mentioned earlier, only he and Eddie Floyd made as many solo LPs for Stax. Capitalizing on Taylor's fame became the focal point for the soul explosion. Taylor's tide could raise all ships. So the label had him in the studio to record the Johnny Taylor philosophy continues, his third LP for the label, and one that really doubled down on the anguished cheating hearts balladry of who's making love. But right now, you're confused, because that's not the album that brought us here today. The album we're featuring is 1969's Raw Blues an album released a few months before the summer of 1969's Soul Explosion. Why do we choose this one over the commercial behemoths of Taylor Stack's career? Well, this album is an interesting artifact of Taylor's oeuvre, in that it took the hit of Who's Making Love to figure out what to do with him in a studio. His instrument was powerful and dexterous, and could be lent to basically any genre he wanted to sing. So Raw Blues stands apart from Taylor's catalog, because it was recorded before Who's Making Love's impact was truly felt and it captures him in, well, his rawest form, a man singing gut-bucket ballads that sound like they're tearing him apart. Raw blues has been out of print for almost 40 years and isn't even mentioned in the big histories of Stax Records. It's like it slipped through the cracks of history, an album of 11 songs of greatness that just didn't hit the way it could have. Taylor would be the biggest solo star on Stax post Otis, and along with the Staple Singers, represent their greatest successes in the 70s. After Stax closed in 1975, he'd have another commercial smash as a disco artist with Disco Lady. He recorded and performed up until a sudden death of a heart attack at age 66 in the year 2000. Before all of that, 50 years ago, he recorded Raw Blues, for my money one of the two or three most underrated masterpieces in the Stax catalog. The Soul Explosion was a success in some manner of speaking. It did create instant catalog and new stars, and is a feat few labels have ever accomplished. But the Soul Explosion also began to expose some of the cracks in the Stacks facade. Here, Steve Cropper talks about what it was like on the inside.
3: In 1969,
1: then, there's the Soul Explosion, which is the the 50th anniversary of this this year. What did that feel like from the inside? Cause you guys were, you know, you tried to put out 20, you put out 29 albums in a year, the label did.
2: Well, that was somebody else's idea. And uh, <clears throat> I think what happened was, and I, met, I mentioned what we were earlier before albums really started happening. We were a singles company. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this, uh, that was a, was a great move, but it also busted up the band you couldn't, instead of working on two songs, you're working on five artists with, you know, 10 mm-hmm. songs. At least that's 50 songs. That's just a lot of workload. Mm-hmm. And you'd go to Booker or go to Isaac or go to Al and say, uh, man, you know, i got a session. Well, I'm sorry, I've got to work on this. I've got to work on that. And I'm, I'm going to have time to plan. So that's when they started farming out stuff, which is fine. You know, some of it turned out pretty good. And it was always a representative there that was doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when they started hiring uh, other producers and outside bands and stuff, and that, that's all well and good. It made it a bigger company, uh, probably making much more money, but the overhead also was much bigger. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and you lose some of the, like, the charm. Well, yeah. I think
2: you, you lost that commonness of doing something every day, and you know, everything takes time, so it's, mm-hmm. it's time was up. Time was tight in those days. <laughs>
1: And that's where we leave this episode. We've passed The Soul Explosion and Raw Blues and Never Found a Girl, the fifth and sixth albums of this edition of Anthology. If you've been waiting to unbox your records until now, you have just one more week before you'll find out the final two albums, both albums from 1972, the year of Watt Stax, and maybe the last shining year Stax had before it closed in 1975. We'll see you next week. This season of the MP Anthology was executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder. This episode's interviews were recorded at American Recording Studio in Memphis with engineering by Jason Gillespie, at OAM Network in Memphis with engineering by Gil Worth, and at the 30 Tigers office in Nashville with engineering by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. Voiceovers are engineered by Jonah Graber. Special thanks to Brad Dunn at American Recording Studio, Stephen Angel Cropper, Booker T, Nan, and Olivia Jones, Robert Gordon, the staff at 30 Tigers for letting me record in your conference room, and Michelle Smith at Stacks. I sign off like I have all season with this reminder. Listen to more David Porter.